Welcome to the Diversity at Work podcast, where we unpack what it's really going to take to close the gender gap in the workplace. Here is your host, leadership coach and diversity consultant, Andrea Jansen. Hey, before we dive into this week's episode, I wanted to take a minute to tell you about Ambitious Every Day. It is all of the exercises that I take my coaching clients through in the form of a journal to help you focus and take action towards your goals. And here's the great news. If you subscribe to our newsletter, you get 11 pages of the journal for free as a PDF right to your inbox. So head on over to ambitiontheory.ca and sign up. Hello, it's Andrea Jansen here. I am the founder of Ambition Theory, and this episode of the podcast was recorded around International Women's Day in March of 2020, right before the COVID-19 pandemic hit. I am really excited to share it with you today in honor of Father's Day, which is coming up on Sunday, June 21st. I sat down and interviewed Michelle Travis, who is a law professor at the University of San Francisco School of Law and the author of the book, Dads for Daughters. In this interview, we talked about practical things that fathers of daughters can do today to make the workplace better for women so that when their daughters get there, they can thrive and they can get into a leadership role if that's what they want. Because unfortunately, today, the gender gap in the workplace is real and the progress that we're making is very, very slow. And to be honest, if we don't speed things up, things are not going to be different for the next generation. Because today, even if you tell your daughter she can be anything she wants when she grows up, the truth is it's going to be harder for her, especially if she wants to be in a leadership role. And so the reason I'm sharing this episode with you today is that I want to give you fathers some very practical tools that you can take to your company right now and implement them that will have an impact, that will create change, and really make the workplace a place where everybody can thrive. Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for coming on the Diversity at Work podcast. I'm so excited that you're here today. Can you introduce yourself and tell everybody what you do? Thank you, Andrea. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to chat with you today. I am a law professor at the University of San Francisco School of Law in California, and I research employment discrimination law and gender stereotypes and work family integration issues. And I was previously an employment lawyer, and in that role, I worked with companies on compliance with workplace laws, but I'm now much more focused on training future lawyers to do that kind of important work. Cool. And you wrote a book. So tell me about that. Yes. Yes. So I'm excited to have um, my book just came out. It's called Dads for Daughters. And it's really an invitation to men to join our fight for gender equity in our workplaces on behalf of their daughters. Um, And so it provides stories of dads of daughters who have really made a difference and had an individual impact in their workplaces. And it shares 
resources and advice and ways to connect uh, dedicated dads with each other and to build partnerships between women and men for us all to move forward on our shared goal of advancing gender diversity in the workplace. I love this topic because I know just the way the numbers break out, there's more men in leadership positions today, especially at the senior levels, actually significantly more. And so for things to really change, we need to get men on board. And I think there's been a lot of talk about men needing to be on board because it's the right thing to do. And it's very generic and it's not personal. So I, I was so excited. I, when we connected on LinkedIn, I was like, I, she looks pretty cool. Like that angle. I haven't any had heard anyone. Like I've heard people anecdotally talk about that angle, but I've never heard of anybody really dive deep into this topic of like, why as a father of a daughter, this issue is your issue. And it is your almost duty to step up and take action. And also just, I think, recognizing power structures in our culture today. So yes, you are father. And in the workplace, like you do have influence. And it's your decision how you use that influence. And you really just started that angle of there's this opportunity for you to step up. And because you have this influence, you can do it. And here's how. So that's why I'm so excited to have you on. Because I think this angle is really relevant. And it's, gonna, it's a way for people to get engaged. Yes. Yes, I totally agree. I think that for many of us, we really separate kind of our parenting role from our professional role. And for men, really consciously making that connection between the role of being the dad of a daughter and their role of being a professional leader in their workplace to connect those two really, as you mentioned, I think opens up this understanding of both a responsibility and a real opportunity to have a personal impact in their workplace settings and to think about those workplaces, not just as where they're hanging out day to day, but where their daughters will in the future end up working. And so by making that connection, I think it makes um, the issue of gender equality and gender diversity personal. And I think that really helps overcome um, some of the barriers that we might face in really getting involved and taking action. And also in really believing that as individuals, we have the power to make a difference. And um, so one of the most rewarding parts of this journey has been talking with men, dads of daughters in particular, who have made this connection and have gone on to become really powerful women's allies in their workplaces. So I'm really curious, kind of before the book idea came about, what was going on for you? Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. Before I wrote Dads for Daughters, I really focused my time on teaching and advocating for legal reforms to advance workplace equality, right? As a lawyer and a law professor, my work was really focused on things like um, advancing paid family leave and getting stronger employment discrimination laws and having greater enforcement of equal pay laws. And my conversations were primarily with other professors, with other lawyers, future lawyers, with judges, with legislators, with policymakers. You know, I was using the typical tools and um, building the typical partnerships that uh, you would in the role of lawyer and law professor. Um, and, and part of that was sort of a realization that there were some limitations to um, that path. 
So Michelle, I'm really curious because you were a lawyer and you talked about the gender pay gap, where is the line between actual discrimination and just unconscious bias in the workplace and the fact that we know like the gender pay gap is a thing and it's most of it is not on purpose. It doesn't happen on purpose. So where is that line? Cause I'm not sure I really understand where it is. It's a great question, and it's one of the reasons that I really found myself looking beyond legal tools to get at issues like the gender pay gap, because legal tools are limited, and one way that they're limited is they often really require some evidence of intentional gender-based bias in order to trigger legal protections, and often that's not really what's going on. It's structural, um, institutional um, implicit biases that are affecting the outcomes on pay and compensation and promotions and inequality, which are not really things that necessarily easily trigger legal protection. And so I think the laws are absolutely a necessary component, but they're not sufficient by themselves. So in order to really get at those underlying structures, we have to really dig deeper into thinking about what kinds of changes can we make in workplace structure, um, in leadership, in um, changing the ways that we we set compensation, the way we talk with each other, um, because the law really tends to focus on looking for intentional, identifiable, single moment decisions where we can find uh, gender affecting that moment of decision making. And that's not really the way most of inequality in the workplace is really these days being um, developed. And okay, so, so I love that. So it sounds like you were kind of like in that, in that intentional discrimination and you're like this is actually not going to solve because that's the tip of the iceberg right it's like all those underlying issues so is that what motivated you to just start learning about this and finding ways to engage yeah absolutely i mean it really was i mean i i started working in uh, a very male-dominated profession, the legal profession, as an attorney. And that really got me thinking about studying workplace equality as a law professor. But what really got me focused on diversity and inclusion in the workplace was the realization of the limits to legal tools. And that we need to move beyond just um, engaging with uh, actors within the legal system to make those really important, deep workplace cultural changes. Um, so that's definitely what got me thinking about equality in the workplace more deeply in terms of cultural changes, inclusion, belonging, um, those kinds of issues, yes. And then what motivated you to take action? Yeah, I mean, I think that in part, it was a frustration with the slow pace of progress. And I see so many incredible women who are feeling very frustrated and working hard. Um, there was also a moment, I think, when I started reading a lot of women's empowerment books, like Sheryl Sandberg's Phenomenal Lean In. Um, and those books are very valuable in terms of thinking about advice for women and how to um, empower them and take control in their workplace. But I found myself feeling in increasingly frustrated about the limited nature of kind of putting the burden on women to um, make the changes to achieve gender diversity. And I realized that we're missing conversations with some of the most important people that can help us accelerate progress. And that's uh, men um, who by and large tend to be in positions of power and need to also understand the benefits of gender diversity um, for themselves, for their businesses, um, and uh, 
particularly for dads, for the future of their daughters. Okay, so I'm wondering, did you have to do any work on yourself in order to be able to step up and start talking about this and spreading the message? Mm -hmm. Yes, this was definitely um, a process of personal growth for me in a couple of ways. I would say that one way that I really needed to grow in my own journey was to stop thinking about gender equity in terms of the goal of achieving women's workplace equality. That was really the goal that I um, described for myself as a lawyer, the, the goal of achieving women's workplace equality. That's how we describe outcomes in, in legal terms. But I really had to start thinking more um, broadly through a more inclusive lens about the goal of achieving gender diversity. And I, what that really meant for me was understanding why we all have a stake in a gender diverse workplace, why it's good for business, why it's good for innovation, why it's good for men, because it frees them up from their own set of very rigid role stereotypes. And that led me to, I think, my biggest area of personal growth, which was to understand the barriers to men's engagement on gender diversity. I had naturally thought a lot about barriers um, institutionally, structurally, culturally um, to gender equity from a women's perspective, you know, the kinds of in institutional and, and often subtle barriers that women face. But I hadn't really thought deeply about the barriers that make it difficult for men to speak up about gender issues, the barriers that make it difficult for men to take their paternity leave, for example. Um, and that really enabled me to um, move forward and, and think more productively. That's cool. So what Roblox came. <laughs> I'm sure yeah, there was some. Definitely. You know, one of the um, most uh, productive roadblocks that I came about in, in my goal of really trying to build partnerships with men to support gender equity in the workplace was what I think was really um, an unintended side effect of the incredibly important Me Too movement. And what I discovered post Me Too was that there are really a lot of men out there who are committed to the idea of gender equality in the workplace. But what I found was that there was this growing discomfort or sense of unease that many men had about actually moving from that commitment into really joining the conversation, really getting involved. And it came from a number of different sources. Um, some men kind of felt like this is maybe not my place to speak or not my place to act. Um, there was some concerns about what if I make a mistake? Um, what if I don't have the right skill set to become um, an ally for gender equity? There was some concerns very specifically about um, if I mentor a woman, will that relationship be misperceived in ways? Um, and these kinds of, of concerns and feelings um, are very real and measurable. The, the Catalyst organization did a survey um, some time ago asking men, um, what is your biggest barrier to actively supporting gender equity in your workplace? And 74% of men reported that it was fear. And the Lean-In organization has um, similarly found that the percentage of, of male managers who report being uncomfortable mentoring women has more than tripled in the wake of Me Too. And so these real genuine concerns are, you know, a potential 
probably a big roadblock to a goal of building partnerships and allyships with men around gender equity. Okay. So how did you figure out that you're like, okay, so number one, you're like, we need to figure this out. There's a huge barrier for men to step up in the workplace for all these reasons. And it's getting worse. It seems to be getting worse. How did you come to the point where you are so laser focused on that father daughter relationship? Yeah. Part of it was personal. At the same time that I started really thinking about, we need to engage more men in gender equity conversations. I also happened to witness the effect that my own two daughters had on my husband. My husband is the leader of a large law firm. And even before we had kids, of course, we had lots of conversations about advancing women in the legal profession. And he was always committed to that goal and he knew it was important. But I don't think that he ever um, truly believed in his own power or his own responsibility to really go in and make a difference. And then we had two daughters and I saw his, you know, it was really stated commitment to gender equity really transform into an urgency to take action. And he suddenly really started saying gender equality must be a doable goal. It must be done now. And I really need to step in and make a difference. And I started wondering if that was a unique phenomenon or if that was something that a lot of fathers felt. And it really turns out when you look at the research that it is a shared experience. Studies have found, for example, that companies run by CEOs who are dads of daughters tend to have a smaller gender pay gap in their companies than those run by other men. Executives who are dads of daughters tend to be more outspoken advocates for women's leadership initiatives. And so I started like imagining what if we launched a, a really a conscious call to action to all dads to become actively involved in gender equality efforts in their workplaces on their daughter's behalf? And, and what might that look like and what might it accomplish and achieve? I love that because it is so powerful right because i feel like there's women are motivated and they say this outwardly a lot i'm doing this for the kids and it's kind of like this a stereotype too right like i'm going to give myself to my children but this gives it flips it around so it gives men the opportunity to do something on behalf of their children and i think that's really beautiful that you've literally taken that stereotype and like flipped it on its head and just reframed it so that men can actually feel really motivated and feel that sense of urgency to take action. So I love that. So I am really curious in when you're kind of taking this call to action, why so much focus on the fathers and not the mothers? Yeah, great question. Because my ultimate goal, of course, is really to build partnerships between men and women, um, because we accomplish so much more working together towards gender equality and gender diversity. Um, But there's a couple of reasons why my, my focus right now is really on fathers. One is that research has found that that women really have their views on gender equity kind of fixed and solidified long before they become parents. 
But men, in contrast, when they have a daughter, that moment is actually a really game-changing event in their lives. It actually really changes the way they look at the world. It changes the way they think about equality. When men have a daughter, uh, particularly a firstborn daughter, uh, studies show, they tend to become more supportive of anti-discrimination laws, more supportive of equal pay laws, more supportive of sexual harassment enforcement, and they tend to become less supportive of traditional gender roles. So for me, that really reveals that the father-daughter relationship itself is something that can be a really powerful catalyst for men to learn and engage and take action. And I would say the other reason that I'm really focusing on fathers is that the father-daughter relationship can make men particularly effective spokespersons for gender equity. And here's why. Um, Social scientists have found that when people advocate for a position that, you know, appears to others to be at odds with their own self-interest, so a man advocating for women's advancement, Um, Others often react with surprise, anger, even resentment, and they tend not to listen to the message. Um, But those reactions are really reduced if the speaker of the message identifies a vested interest in the outcome. So what this means for men is that by explicitly invoking your status as the father of a daughter um, in an authentic and genuine way, it can really validate your participation in gender equality conversations. Um, It gives men what social scientists call standing to speak. Um, And that standing to speak really allows listeners to engage with a much more open mind and then um, hear the message. And so I think I focus in part on, on dads of daughters because they have this unique potential to be influential voices and advocates and recruiters of other men into the conversation. I love that. That is really cool. You said the first, there's a difference between if it's the first born daughter or not. <laughs> yes. So in our, my family, we have two boys and our daughter's in the middle. Ah, but how does that show up? What does yes. that make a difference? Yes. So still has a very powerful effect, the research suggests, on men's thinking about gender equality, thinking about um, being sort of disrupting uh, typical gender roles, whether the daughter is um, uh, where it comes first or second. Um, although where we see kind of a less impact is second daughter, third daughter, fourth daughter. Um But there does seem to be something like the most powerful effect on just that immediate shift on dad's thinking about um, gender equality issues just at the moment of birth tends to be firstborn daughter. Oh, because it's like there's such a big life change. And then that's like that's happening anyways. And if it's a daughter, it's like amplified. Whereas if it's a daughter second, it's like you've already had that transition to becoming a parent. So it's not as big of a, okay, got it. Exactly. Exactly. And I will say that there's, there's another moment research suggests when um, having a daughter can be pretty powerful in terms of men's thinking um, about gender equality issues. And that's when their daughters are older. So when you first have a daughter, very powerful moment, especially um, firstborn daughter. But also when your daughters become older and your own daughters start facing issues like work-family conflict or maybe faced uh, 
gender pay discrimination in their own workplace and share those experiences, that has been a very important and powerful um, triggering moment for a lot of dads who often feel like a little bit helpless in terms of um, what they can do for their daughter. Um, and so turning around and saying, well, at least I can make my workplace a little bit better for the women who are entering here um, can be a very um, uh, genuine, useful, valuable kind of result from that learning experience as well. Okay. That's cool. That's really cool. So I want to kind of focus on the gender pay gap. Mm-hmm. So you talked about in the book about how there's been, there's so many books for women about negotiation and you said that that's just not enough. Can you explain that to me? Yes. And, you know, as I'm sure we all know, with our current rate of change in the pay gap, most women are not going to be seeing gender pay equity in their working lives. So there's a lot of work to be done here. So I'm glad you're asking this question. Um, the slow pace of change on the gender pay gap really makes me um, believe that there's underlying structural problems with the way we set compensation. So when we focus really on women's negotiation skills, training as a way to get at the gender pay gap, that conversation really assumes that setting pay through individual negotiations is the right structure. And we just need to make sure that women have um, the skill set to navigate within that structure. And the problem is really that gender biases are going to affect pay negotiation, no matter how skilled women are. When women ask and seek more pay or a promotion in the same way as men, they get very different responses. Women usually get more hostile responses, less successful results, and even worse, research suggests that when women really negotiate for pay, they are viewed as less likable, they're often viewed as overly aggressive, and people report that they don't want to work with them on their teams in the future as much. And so that's really not setting them up for success. So although it's definitely one piece of the puzzle now, I think what we really need to do is start thinking about the structures that are supporting unequal pay and think in particularly about, are there ways other than individual negotiation for setting compensation? Can we use objective criteria or skills-based assessment? And also, I think we should be focusing really on increasing pay transparency. If everyone in a company knows what everyone else is getting paid, that can be really powerful in moving towards um, an equal pay scale. So what can, let's talk about, I love that you, that you brought this up because I have read the books. I've talked to lots of people who have gotten, gone to bat for themselves, but what can like a dad of a daughter do, right? So they're in a negotiation and they're in that position of power. Like what can they do? Because I don't think they even know they may be contributing to the gender pay gaps. Yeah, it's a great question. I think that this is actually a really great place for men to step in as allies for gender equity. Um, one of the really um, important things that that men and dads of daughters in particular can do is to um, support pay transparency. And if you're in a leadership position, you can open up the pay scales, open up the compensation data for everyone to see. And if you're not in that position, you can at least um, support demands and requests for pay transparency, including sharing your own compensation information, encouraging the other men around you to share their compensation information, because the more information that's out there, the easier it is to recognize the problem. 
Um, I think it's also a really great role for dads to um, suggest other ways besides individual negotiation for setting pay. Um, and if they're on the side of trying to um, set pay for women to say, maybe we should think about other criteria instead of just doing these individual one-off negotiations. Um, and of course, I think men are also sometimes in leadership positions are able to request um, or implement regular pay audits that internally look at how are our pay scales looking and are they drifting in various ways? Um, are there periods of time in which we see um, women who take uh, maternity leave suddenly see a drop in their pay looking for those kinds of patterns? And that really just requires um, conscious internal auditing data, looking at the data. And I think those are great ways, um, those are really great ways that men can be allies uh, for women and for gender equality in their workplace. So I want to share a personal story with you because I went, I was, I was on an airplane this week and I was reading your book, specifically I was reading chapter 10, focusing on the gender pay gap. And I've seen this from both sides from, I've seen it in the corporate world with my clients, with people that I meet at networking events. I have had people that said that have access to the, so women have access to the data. They look up salary, they have, they can look up salaries and they're like, wow, I, have more experience and I'm making less money than um, a man in a similar role. And then they start that conversation with their leader. And most of the time they aren't successful at getting anything done because it's like the leader's like, I don't have control. We have a scale. There's always these reasons why. So can you comment on that? Yes. This is one of the most frustrating things about the gender pay gap is that even when women are um, absolutely skilled at the negotiation process, bring very clear data to people in power, there really tends to be always some reason why this individual decision makes sense or there's not a power to make um, massive changes within the workplace, which is why I think the answer has to be um, in this particular case structural changes about how we are actually setting compensation in this workplace, right? It has to be in a in sort of revamped way in which we set based on assessing skills, based on very objective criteria, and in which there is someone tasked with, specifically tasked with, looking at all of the overall pay individually and seeing if there's gender differences. And, you know, I would say another thing that has been kind of effective in reducing gender pay gaps within companies is to make someone accountable in terms of their own compensation for reaching the goal of reducing the gender pay gap, right? If someone's tasked with that and we say your compensation is going to be based on how effectively you address this issue, that can get some personal um, accountability on saying, okay, I'm going to actually look at this data and figure out structurally what the problem is. Okay. Um, right? In other words, to make pay equity part of the compensation decision for men in power who have the most influence over setting pay scales. Oh, such a good idea. <laughs> Super effective, um, really effective. That can focus one's energy on that um, as well. Uh, but it's just, it is, um, uh, it's a challenging process that's not going to have one answer to it. Um, but men have to play a role in it, I think. Um, it, it, it has to be, men have to be, you know, active um, participants in this conversation to make it work. Because I was thinking about this a lot, like on the airplane, because that chapter really hit home for me. And I thought like people that I know have like 
they realize they're get, not getting paid the same. And then a lot of the times they end up leaving the organization and then they maybe will get a little bit more at the next place. But then I was thinking about that. Are they actually, is it equal there? Because maybe in that they're just, they're making more, their, their actual take home salary is higher. But if they're looking at the benchmark in, in that company, I would assume there probably still is a gap. So that's yeah. one thing I see. The other thing I see is women saying, I'm going to give up. I'm going to leave the corporate world. And this, I, where I got emotional on the airplane reading your book was that entrepreneurs actually make, get paid less. Female entrepreneurs get paid less than male entrepreneurs. And I know for me personally, when I do proposals, a lot of the time people will push back on the fee. Even when you bring to their attention, I'm sure that your fee is perfectly in line with industry standards, still that result happens, I'm sure. Yes, this is very emotional. I would say on the first point, this is actually one place where we're actually seeing a little bit of legal development that I think is helpful. Um, there's a number of states that are implementing laws that prevent employers from looking at prior pay histories as part of um, setting pay scales, which will help ensure that we're not just um, perpetuating past inequality when you start moving from job to job. So it's a small step forward. Um, with respect to women entrepreneurs, I agree with you that the data on that can actually feel quite depressing. But let me share with you um, at least one small piece of good news with respect to entrepreneurship. Um, this good news comes from a study of venture capital firms, which, as we know, are one of the um, important gatekeepers um, to entrepreneurship. The study found that um, VC companies that have senior partners who are dads of daughters tend to hire more women into their partnership ranks than other VC firms. And those women partners, in turn, tend to invest in more women-led companies. And that, in turn, has made those particular VC companies far more financially successful. In other words, having more women partners and investing in women-run companies was actually good for the VC company's bottom line. So I think that's one small ray of hope um, as that information gets out and is highlighted. Um, I think that can help. But again, um, there's roles, I think, for men in general and dads of daughters in particular to play um, to continue kind of moving that needle forward a little bit. Um, so I'm just curious in the just because I want to give some people something tangible. So let's just use me for an example, because I get pushback on my proposals all the time. So is there like a trick? Like, I don't know if there's something like, so say I'm making a proposal for, and it's a man of a daughter and he's reading my proposal and, and he's questioning the fee. <laughs> yeah. What, what, how do you change that? Cause there's something, cause I, like, I don't know if that happens with men. I'm not sure if it does. I don't think it does. Yeah. 
It's a great question. If there is a subtle way that you can trigger the thinking of the father in terms of father of a daughter, have that moment thought process go through their minds, it often really does trigger their thinking in a different way about the moment of their decision making. As I said, most many of us, men and women, we compartmentalize our two different roles. Um, but if there is some subtle way that you can really I, get into the conversation, um, the man to think about their role as dad of a daughter, it really can change the way they actually step back and look at that decision-making in the moment. Um, now, that's often hard to do because it's not a natural conversation piece when you have a proposal in front of them. Um, that's a possibility. Um, I do think that um, sharing studies with individuals, whether in real time at proposal or before or after, um, that shows that these distinctions are very real um, and um, that we don't even realize they're happening. Um, I do think that some of these individuals can be um, data driven. Um, and if you demonstrate the business case and the data behind it, um, that can be helpful. But it's a very tricky thing for us to do on an, any one given moment, individual moment. So it, I, that's in part why I think some of this kind of conversation and education and background is really important to kind of shift thinking before individual women like you are facing that moment of um, unequal results from what has really been structurally built and cooked into the system. Mm -hmm. And I just, after I read that, that chapter I just I felt so free because I have like when I talk to other consultants it's always like Andrew you got to prove the value you got to show the ROI and it's like it goes back to like the nego women's negotiation books aren't actually enough so it's like the, that's kind of like what in the industry is today for consultants or coaches it's like you prove the value you got to show your worth and it's all on me to solve it, but I love that you offer a new opportunity. It's like, Andrea, I know this is not on you, but maybe it's gonna be hard and it's gonna, like I may still probably face this. I will probably make, still make less than, than men in my industry because that's the statistics and I would love to be the exception, but we always pretend that we are the exception, but at the end of the day, usually the statistics are true. Um, but I love that it's like, you know, it's not on me. I just like, there's another way, there's this new opportunity. And I found that so freeing. So I want to thank you for giving me that perspective because, um, I think I was really frustrated and I was like, how do I focusing so much on what I needed to do, but I just, maybe it's, I need to just let it go and just recognize it for what it is. And like you said, maybe there's a subtle way for me to prep the conversation. So that, yeah, it's really tough because I think, um, given how deeply ingrained these um, gender stereotypes and biases are, and often operating not at a conscious intentional level, it not only um, results in women um, facing unequal results, but also, as you just described, the kind of secondary harm, which is feeling like, what am I doing that is not enough to accomplish this? And that's the piece that hopefully conversations like this and the work that your um, podcast is doing generally can help start disrupting that. So at least that secondary piece isn't there. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I think is um, 
very powerful. And I don't think that most people realize is when in all kinds of settings where people are assessing um, whether to hire someone or um, whether to work with someone who's an, an entrepreneur or consultant, there's this tendency and it's just innate, it's ingrained, it's a gender stereotype um, that we're not even aware of. We tend to, men and women do this both, we tend to assess men um, based on their potential, right? Not necessarily what they've proven they can already do, but do they have the potential to do this? Whereas for women, we tend to assess only based on have you already demonstrated specific accomplishments in this arena? Um, and that's a very unequal playing field at that moment that you're describing. And it's something that you don't have control over in that moment, which is why it's really important to have these background conversations to start kind of really um, understanding how those kinds of um, gender differences in the way we assess um, really are having an effect without us intending it and, and often without even realizing it. Yeah, totally. And like when I'm talking about these people um, yeah. questioning my fees, it's not on purpose. It's like, it's a big fee. And they're like, I'm not, maybe like they don't even have the budget for it. And it but there's like, it's, there's always lots of things going on. Like, I don't think they realize it, that it's happening, but it's happened to me so many times that I see it, <laughs> it just becomes... Yes a pattern so yes. yeah I it, like I don't think people do it on purpose I don't think they realize that they're doing it at all yeah which is makes it in some ways even harder to get at actually mm -hmm. um absolutely and I can say that your experience is uh shared widely a lot of women in your position um yes so work totally. to be done for sure yes work to be done but I just I really appreciate it just validating that you know it's not on me it's not on my shoulders. Yes. Like I'm, I'm doing all the things. Yes. And there's just, there is this systemic issue that exists today. And that is the reality of, of everybody that is yes. working today. <laughs> really. Absolutely. Which can be either depressing or hopefully liberating as yeah. we know that, um, uh, there's other work that needs to be done that can't be put on our shoulders individually. Yes, totally. And I think I, for me, it's, I think it's liberating because it's like, it's not all on me. I just need to focus on what I need to focus on. And we need to just get to work. Like more people need to get on board and get, get started taking Absolutely. some action. Um, so Michelle, at the end of all of my podcast interviews, I, I want to give people an action. So something they can do within 24 hours about what they learned. So you've taught me a lot today. So what can a dad of daughter that is listening right now do just to get started? Well, I think the easiest first step, if you're the dad of a daughter and you want to get involved in thinking about gender equity on behalf of your daughters is to take a really hard look around your own workplace and ask yourself, honestly, would I want my daughter to be working here? And follow that up with the question, do I think my daughter would be able to become a leader here in my workplace? And if the answer to those questions are no, that means that it's time to really roll up your sleeves and jump in and get started. And one way to do that is to grab a copy of my book, Dads for Daughters, which I've created exactly for individuals like you who are committed to the idea of gender equity, but need some really easy concrete steps and resources about how you can individually make a difference on a day-to-day -day basis with small doable actions in your own workplace. 
Awesome. And so if people want to learn more about you and buy the book, how do they do that? So you can connect with me through my author website, which is michelletravis.net. You can also find information about me on the University of San Francisco School of Law faculty website. And of course, my book, Dads for Daughters, is available on Amazon. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on, Michelle. This was a really great interview and I learned a lot. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you and thanks for the work that you are doing. Appreciate it. Hi there. Before you go, I was wondering if I could ask you a huge favor. Can you click on iTunes and give the podcast a five-star review and also a comment? This would mean the world to me. It also helps us to spread the word about the podcast and attract higher profile guests. We want to be able to deliver thought leadership around diversity inclusion every single week and having more reviews on iTunes will help us to do that and help us to keep the show going for free for you. So please head to iTunes right now, give us a five-star review and leave us a comment. Thanks so much.